Uh, well, we are in this series uh, called Doxology, and what I've been seeking and wanting and desiring to do is for us to sort of learn and develop this habit of praise to the Lord, just our own spontaneous praise to the Lord. And because we're in this season right now where there's these, all these big transitions and big changes in people's lives, we, we decided to do that through just asking one another, what's your doxology? What's your praise? And we've been looking through these passages in the New Testament where the New Testament writers, they, they take a moment, sometimes mid-letter, oftentimes at the end, to simply say, now to God who is able. And they list out some beautiful attribute, ability, uh, character trait of the Lord's. To that God be glory. We see that rhythm in all of the um, doxologies we're looking at. Uh, there's one in Jude we looked at two weeks ago. Last week was uh, the doxology at the end of Romans. Today will be Ephesians and uh, Pastor Carl. Next week will be uh, teaching us uh, from a doxology in Hebrews. And every single one of them follows this same pattern. This is why we wanted to introduce it to you, to give this away to you so you can use it. Every single one of these doxologies begins with an address to the Lord. Now to God. And then there's some list, some recognition of the goods, we, you know, alliteration, sorry, uh, of what it actually means to be in connection and praise the Lord. Something that is true and beautiful and right, maybe even a benefit to us about the Lord. And then finally, to that God, we give glory. At the end of every service, we've asked you to sort of write your own and start carrying these around with you as a, as a habit. And some, as I've uh, been able to say to you, have um, started just trying to create this habit of doing it just before they put their key in their front door or at a stoplight or as they sit down at their office uh, chair, whatever it is, to inculcate and have and develop this habit of praise. Today we'll be looking at this um, doxology from the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. And this doxology is so well-known. It's often used as um, an end to a worship service. I have mine that I, you know, I do every week. And uh, this is one that my last senior pastor, when I was a youth pastor in Berkeley, the lead pastor, senior pastor there, this is how he ended every single service. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. Wait. To do immeasurably more. Let's pause there for a second. We'll read the rest. Exceedingly abundantly, immeasurably more, all of these things. You'll see every translation try to do something slightly different because Paul is using a made-up word here. He literally has squished two words together to try to indicate how over-the-top lavish God is. It's like us using the word ginormous, or fantabulous, or huge-mongous. We do that too. Sometimes we'll connect, you know, conflate words as a way to try to express something really, really big. And that's what Paul has done here. So my pastor back in Berkeley would say, now to God who is um, able to do exceedingly abundantly, more than we can ask or even imagine, according to his power, that is at work within us. 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And for my mentor pastor, what he would uh, say whenever you ask him about it, he would say, well, the reason why I end that way every single time is because it turns out the church is really broken. And whenever it is we come gathered, or whenever it is we even do our own personal devotion and worship, we come with what is actually a meager offering in light of what God has first given to us. We don't come with what is due our Lord. And what he said is, I, I pray this because that, let God do in his abundant mercy, do whatever it is that we give to him. May he turn it to his glory. May he take our tiny little things and may he make them immeasurably greater, abundantly um, exquisite by his creative power and spirit. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus now and forevermore. Amen. So let's spend a few minutes praying together, shall we? And there's some other things I want to point out to us about this passage as we get underway. Let's pray. Gracious, holy God, for some of us, you have been preparing our hearts and minds and imaginations to hear from your word this morning. And for some, we barely made it and we're still catching our breath. Would you, gracious God, as you promise, as you say in Ephesians chapter 1, will you, will you open up the eyes of our heart? You teach us and instruct us. In light of all that's good and beautiful in our life, Lord, would you, would you let your word to magnify it? And in light of all that needs to be corrected and made more holy in our life, Lord, would your word instruct us and purify us? May my words and our thoughts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. If you are our Lord, rock, and redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. So one of the other things that I've been saying as we go through these things is whenever it is we, we, we get one of these doxologies, it's probably good for us to go back and survey and understand because they, they actually act as a kind of a summary. They act as a way to sort of like put all of whatever's been said before in sort of a, a box of praise. And so it is with this passage from Ephesians chapter 3. And what I want to say, I'm going to look at three of the phrases in here and sort of just try to sort of like shed more and new light on them for us. Three things that are true of, about us and our relationship with the Lord that come from this passage beyond simply saying whatever it is we bring, God will do more with it. And what I want to sort of do is say the very first thing we need to know about this passage, the very first thing we want to see simply is this, that we have won the lottery. Second, that we must learn now to live in a wealthy way. And third, we must see that our wealth has a purpose. And as we go through these things, we'll see them both uh, in passages in Ephesians and also specifically in this passage from chapter 3, this doxology. Now to God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. The first thing I want you to see is that we have won the lottery. 
Uh, my, my dad um, spent most of his working life when I was um, aware of him uh, in uh, retail. He was a grocery um, manager for a Safeway store. And he was a very cautious man. He was very careful. He was very methodical. Every week he'd buy like a $25 savings bond for his entire life. And uh, one time, I, I, worked, I got the chance to work with him for 15 months. I took a year off of school. I'm not sure I've talked about that a lot lately. Um, so I worked for a summer and a school year in the summer for my dad's store. And I probably was eight, ten weeks in before one time I was there working, and my dad was in line during his little break, and he bought a lottery ticket. And I, I said, Dad, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm, I'm buying a lottery ticket. I'm like, I, I'm never supposed to do that. <laughs> what, what are you doing? And he went on to say that sometimes, as an expression, you know, he never would have said it this way, but I think as a really an expression of hope, when it got to a certain amount, he would allow himself to buy a ticket per drawing until someone else won the lottery. And I, I have to confess, especially since my dad's passing, um, I do the same. I do the same thing. And although, honestly, I do it mostly as an expression of remembrance of my father, of course, I go through the things that I would do if I actually won the lottery. Of course I do. And what Paul is wanting to show us here, in the middle of all of that thinking and imagining and wondering of everything else, it might, what might actually come to us if we got that sort of a, a financial windfall? What, what he wants to say to us is actually it, it pales in comparison to what God has actually given to us. This is the way he says it by summary. We have it in this doxology, but here's what he says at the very beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Another doxology. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Friends, you have won the lottery in Jesus Christ. He has seen you, recognized you, and what he actually has done is he's, he's been lavishly sort of pouring out his thick grace on us as an expression of his love before we do anything at all. Every spiritual blessing, whatever your limit is, the lottery you just have won in Christ is greater than that. It's greater than that. It's, it's actually bigger than the lottery because it's going to last Regardless of what your plans are for the lottery, you're never going to win. You're going to die, and it's going to go away, and you can't take it with you. No matter what your plans are, at some point, you know, you're going to like endow some chair and start this charity. It's going to change its name. It's not going to remember you as its founder. You're no longer going to be important. You're going to be worm food. But in Christ, you have been lavished with every spiritual blessing. 
It's greater, actually, than the thing you wander and work for and seek and dream about. It's also, as it turns out, it's, it's more likely than the lottery. It turns out Jesus, in his generosity, is lavish with everybody. Every spiritual blessing in Christ is made available to you. You don't have to have the magic ticket. And if you find the magic ticket, it's the same as the person next to you. See, we have won the lottery. It's also less visible than winning the actual financial lottery. People may not know it. They may not see it. You could argue maybe they should. The great gift of what God has given to us is said this way in Ephesians 2 because we keep on coming back to these summary statements. He says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. Now to God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you can ask or even imagine. We offer praise to him in part because of his magnificent gentle with us, gentleness with us. He has saved us. He's been rich with us. He's, he's taken us in our dead selves and he said, I give you life in my name now and forevermore. So the first thing we're saying when we say this doxology is we're saying that we have been the recipients of the greatest gift, the greatest spiritual lottery, the, the greatest amount of hope that one could ever possibly receive. What have you done for it? Nada. Let's be clear. This is God's work, not yours. You didn't even buy a ticket. So you've won the lottery, but, but then also it's good for us to then learn how to live into our wealth. This is an important, important step. Really hard for us, actually. Oftentimes we get it the reverse. What I really need to do is I need to keep on working and getting it right and being obedient and being in the right things and singing the songs and raising my hands and all those things. I need to do all of that so that I might have salvation. I need to do the work that I might actually then achieve the goodness of God's blessing. But friends, the gospel's so clear over and over and over again. The, the first thing that comes is his lavish grace. The first thing that comes is a lottery. Now you have to learn how to live it. How do you live with this? When people get extraordinary sudden wealth, there's a couple things that, um, they can, that happen. One is they deny it. They don't understand the freedom that their new wealth might actually bring to them. Between services, someone said they watched this show on HGTV where this someone has won the lottery and a real estate agent comes and says, let me show you what you now can buy. And consistently, these people walk into the houses, you know, they've won $180 million. Honey, can we afford this? Of course you can. People miss 
what's actually true and beautiful about the rewards they've received. But the other thing that might sometimes happen, actually, is, is and probably you've seen this too, you've seen this in this town. People are so excited about their newfound wealth, they buy a Maserati. Open up the windows, blare the speakers, you know, turn the corner on rails, going 35 miles an hour. You've seen it? I've seen it. They take all their friends for a fun little junket to the Bahamas. They, they do outlandish things, which actually sort of is like, seems to be wasteful in a certain way. Sometimes we talk about the difference between new money and old money. And people who seem to have old money, sometimes they, they found a way to find the groove for what it is that God, or what it is that they've received financially. Not too ostentatious. There's no point in drawing attention to it. They're able to do the things that are, they're curious about. And those finances can actually be a really good, temporary, fleshy gift. They can be good. And what we see here is this invitation that according, um, let me go, let me through this verse again. Sorry, I've, I should have it off the top of my head by now. Now to him who is able to, uh, to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. There's this invitation for us to learn how to live what is already true about us. We must learn to live the wealth that we already have. Ephesians 2.10 says it this way. Probably know this passage. We are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you notice we're like third in line in that? God made us, created us to do good works, and we're supposed to do them. But that comes at the end. We've already been lavishly loved. We've already received every spiritual blessing in Christ. I think this is one of the, this is the place where a lot of disciples get stuck. And frankly, we're probably always going to be in this spot, learning how to live with the wealth of what we received in Christ. But because it's hard and it's tricky and we fail, sometimes we set it aside. We don't allow ourselves to continue to grow and learn how to live with what it is that God has given to us. We actually see that almost that kind of concern just in this passage, just before this doxology we're talking about today. Paul sort of lays out this prayer, and we see how urgent and how worried he is that people learn how to live with what it is that they've been given. Let me read this passage to you, starting at chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, there it is again, extraordinary gift of wealth, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long 
and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul knows that learning how to live with the gifts that we've been receiving will be a life's work. And he says, really, as we learn to do that, it should be really extraordinarily transformational for us. Go on to this next little list here. In verse 15, it, he prays that we would have an inner spiritual strength. In verse 17, that we would receive the indwelling of Christ in our hearts. Have you ever wondered where we get that idea that we should accept Christ in our hearts? Look no further, friends. This is one of those places. Paul says for us to actually learn how to live what's already true of us, we have to let Christ all the way down into the deepest core of who we are. To change our imaginations, to alter our habits, to challenge the way that we work out in the world. We might discover it's the indwelling Christ who's at work within us. He prays that we might grasp the inescapable reach of God's love. It's, it's high, it's deep, it's wide, it's forever. And he wants us to grasp onto this love that we might actually then begin to express it outward. I want you to think about the most naturally loving person you can just muster. This person just has found a way, whoever it is, like you know, you've, everyone's got one, who just has found a way to, to graciously celebrate, include, enfold, and honor whoever it is that they are in contact with. What Paul is praying is that in Christ we would become like that kind of person. Not that we all would become extroverts, that would hurt my heart but that we all would learn, that we would all embrace this notion that the, the deeper we allow Christ to sort of get under the layers of our skin, the more actually we end up exuding his character out into the world. That we so apprehend and understand his love, it starts to become visible in the way we treat our spouses the way we conduct our business work, the way we consult and counsel with our friends or with our students or the way we treat our friend's boyfriend or whatever else, that we end up actually grasping how deep and wide and far and long is the love of God to the point that we're filled to overflowing. We are exceedingly super abundantly, ginormously overflowing with the love of God. Not to earn salvation, but because we have it. And it gives us a really settled core. So first, we need to remember we've won the spiritual jackpot. 
Now we are called in this ongoing way to learn how to, to live with this new wealth that we have, this deep confidence that we have. And then finally, as you can see this last point, we have to sort of learn that we have a, it has a purpose. This wealth has a purpose, and it turns out it's not for us. The things that we've received are not simply just for our own personal enjoyment, but they're actually meant to be scattered out into the world. I always tell myself that I would, this would never be me. But did you know that people who win the actual financial lottery, 70% of them are back to their regular state of wealth within five years? And even if they're not, did you know that those people in study and study and study after study demonstrably are not happy? They are alone, isolated, friendless, confused, they lack vision. I tell myself, Lord, I wouldn't be one of those. <laughs> but see, what actually often happens with our own financial resources is they, they actually end up isolating us and walling us off from the world in some way. But what's actually interesting is the more that we find ourselves managing the wealth that God has given to us, the more we find ourselves linked with one another. See, that's part of God's like, eternal plan, that he's going to take every kind of person in Colossians, he says it this way, there's no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. There's no male or female, but Christ is in all. See, the, the work that God is on, is what he's about, he's, he's actually about this work of knitting humanity together into one new body of God's people. Every color, language, tribe, perspective. And the wealth that we've been given is intended for us to be on that part of God's kingdom. That would exhibit that perspective of seeking and pursuing unity. And um, we don't do that alone. Oftentimes in this church, I will talk about our personal salvation in Jesus Christ. I'll talk about our own personal relationship with the Lord. And that's right. I should. There's a lot of great examples in Scripture that lead us to be thinking and pondering how we can grow in closeness and intimacy with God. But you know what's interesting? Right next to those passages in Scripture, there's almost always this affirmation. It's really about God's people and not a person. If you've been writing down the verses we've been looking at so far, or if you've got them marked in your own Bible in some way, every time it says the word you, that, my friends, is like a y'all moment. There is no singular you in all of the book of Ephesians. It's never talking to only a single person. In every case, he's saying, this is what needs to be true of all of you as a community. You, you take the wealth that's been lavishly poured out on you, you, you pool it, and you express God's kingdom relationally, as a church, out in the world, doing missions, whatever it is. You do it together. We're part of the way God is knitting the world back together. He says it this way in Ephesians 3. His intent was that now, through the church, 
You're part of it, but you don't do it alone. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in its heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. We, all of us. How are we going to do that? I mean, isn't it super abundantly obvious that the church, in many, many ways, is a train wreck? I mean, isn't it clear as you sort of read things out in the news that the church is a mess? I mean, isn't it true? Don't you sometimes hear it here? People have said the most awful things to you as, like, hey, God bless you, but... How is it that we are supposed to become this beautiful, glorious expression of God's love that's so obvious, so striking, so compelling, that even the powers and authorities in the heavens take notes? How is that supposed to take place? However can we do that? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, more than we can ask or even imagine, according to the power that is at work within us. To that God be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ now and forevermore. Friends, it would be a mistake to start with Jesus and end back up with our own responsibility without him. If we're going to do these things that we're called to do in this doxology and in all the book of Ephesians, the only way we do it is if we come back to God. We don't leave him aside after we've accepted his salvation, but he's working in us and through us all. We've uh, won this spiritual lottery. Congratulations. Now it's time for us to learn how to live our wealth and to do it together. That's what it says in Ephesians 3. What's your doxology? What's yours? At the end of every one of these services so far in this series, we've taken just about 90 seconds to two minutes for you to just take that little card in my back pocket foolishly buttoned. And just write your own simple little doxology following that pattern we were talking about. Now to God, here are the things that God's able to do or I need God to do or God will do based on his promises. To that God then be glory. We're going to have just a a little bit of sort of music so the quiet is sort of soaked up by something else. I'm going to ask you to spend the next two minutes writing your own and I'll come back and share as we come to the close of our service.
have been encouraging us to find uh, someone to share these with, spouse, friend, small group, study partner, something. Um, and as a way to do that, I've, I've been reading my own. Some of the ones that I've been hearing have been like intentionally like really down to the nitty gritty. Like, now to the Lord who makes it possible for my baby to finish her bottle. Right? Or like really sort of big scale scope. Now to the God who's ever patient with me in the midst of my sin and the sin of my community. To that God be purpose and glory and hope now and forever. Whatever it is the Lord has led you to, I want you to sort of learn this pattern and say it. Here's the one that I, I just uh, laid out just now. It's summertime in our family, probably for many of yours too. Now to God, who is able to protect my children better than me. To that God who will walk with them this summer. To that God be glory, praise, joy, and honor now and forevermore. Amen. Friends, share your doxologies as an act of worship and as an act of living your wealth side by side with someone else. We're not going to be led in some worship. Let me invite you to use your voice as loud and as proud as you can.